it's, it's a question, how do you change, is a question that all of us in one way or another wrestle with every day. And it was a question that was put to me just, just a month or so ago in one of the most gripping and painful ways that it ever has been before. And someone that I have done ministry with for years, maybe, well, since, since the beginning. I mean, 12, 13, 14, 15 years. Um, this was a person that, for as long as I have known him, he has struggled with porn. Other things too, but porn's on the list. And I um, have worked with him, been in his life. He's been in our life. He's been in our home countless times. And there's been seasons where he's really gotten better. Seemed like grace has really taken a hold of his life and there has been change. Seasons of change, years of change. And then it bottoms out and he's in a mess again. And then it seems like it gets better and bottoms out and he's in a mess again. And he, we were in a season where we thought he was doing really well. And then he uh, slipped off the radar. We hadn't heard from him in a while and there were some concerning signals. And so I started trying to track him down. And I found him, really, really long story made really, really short. Um, I was able to find, track him down to a really seedy hotel in a bad part of Louisville, where I live and where he lives. And uh, I was able to get into the hotel room. That's a long story. Um, I tried knocking and that didn't work and we were concerned that he was not okay. And so we were able to get in and I opened up the door and it was one of the most horrifying scenes I've ever witnessed. There was no light in the room until I opened up the door. And so the sunlight when I came in from the outside, just filled up the room. And it was revolting. All around the floor were pizza boxes, takeout sandwich boxes, food on the floor, just stuff piled up. There were some beer bottles piled up on the nightstand. And in the center of the room was the bed that he was on, surrounded in cigarette butts all over the bed, burn holes in the mattress. And he was laying naked on the bed with his computer open looking at porn. It smelled like he hadn't showered for as long as he'd been in that room. He had a beard that had grown that he hadn't shaved And he saw me and he closed his laptop and he hopped up and he started bawling. And he hopped off the bed naked and grabbed my legs and 
was sobbing. I'm so sorry. It's such a mess. It's so pathetic. I mean, it was howling. And I'm looking at this naked man who just hopped off the bed. He's been looking at porn and a hotel room ordering pizza for over a week. And it looked to me like hell, honestly. It it looked to me the way I think hell must look. Just the fulfillment of every sinful desire you ever had, where it really goes. When this guy first started looking at porn when he was in high school, he never thought he was going to be out of a job, broke, bad breath, naked, beard, holed up in a hotel room for a week in a bad part of town just so he could look at porn. He never thought that was going to happen. He just thought the girls were pretty. He thought it was a cheap way to look at sex. And now he's in a hotel room screaming at my feet, clutching onto me, naked as the day he was born. And he's calling out, how do I quit? I mean, I, I can't, I mean, at the top of his lungs, how do I stop screaming at me? Just a prisoner. How do you change? How do I get different than what I am? And we talked for a while there in that hotel room. I'll tell you, it didn't end well. Uh, There's not a happy ending to the story right now. We're still... We're still working on him, but right now, he still thinks that's better than living in the light. But as we, as we talked in that hotel room, we wound up talking about Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. Let me ask you to turn there. I, I, We're talking about this here. The last time I talked about this text was in that hotel room. I wiped pizza boxes out of a seat and talked about this passage with a naked man sitting on a hotel room while porn played on his laptop that was closed. And this passage has everything to do with him and his life and with you and your struggle or the struggle of the person you love or the struggle of the person you're trying to help. And it's short and sweet. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How do you change? This is a passage That tells us how. How do you get out of that hotel room? Or how do you avoid that hotel room? This is a passage that tells us how. If this were the only verse in the Bible, we would have more stuff than anybody else has. And it's just one verse. The passage assumes something. It's a safe assumption. It assumes that you and I want good things. 
It assumes that people, everybody who struggles with sin wants good things. It assumes that everybody who looks at porn wants good things. It assumes that you would like to prosper. It assumes that you want to obtain mercy. And based on that assumption, it tells you how to avoid obtaining mercy. And it tells you how to embrace, or it it tells you how to avoid um, a situation where you're not prospering. And it tells you how to embrace a situation where you are obtaining mercy. But the assumption is you want good things. People want good things. People sin because they want good things. People obey because they want good things. I was just talking with, um, with a woman just this week. Um, in, uh, in my office. And she is a woman who struggles with lesbianism. And she struggles with looking at lesbian porn. And she asked to meet with me. And we're sitting in my office. And she said, I don't, I don't see who's getting hurt in this. That's what she said. She's making the argument that if this helps me feel better, that's a good thing. And so what we have to do as people who want good things, we have to believe the source of all goodness about where we're going to find those good things. We looked um, the the other day in my office with this young woman at uh, Proverbs 6, where it says, if you go to the forbidden woman, which is exactly what she's tempted to do, She's, she's going to the forbidden woman in Proverbs 6 that if you, says if you go to her, you will get wounds and disgrace and dishonor. So the, the irony, I said to this woman, is you want good things, but God who is totally trustworthy is giving you a guarantee that what you're doing will keep you from the good things. Because you're going after a forbidden woman and you will get burned. And here, the author of Proverbs is appealing. Listen. In the same way, um, back in Proverbs 6, don't forsake the Bible. Don't forsake your, husband, your father's instruction. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. Listen to the way of wisdom. Do you want good things? Do you want to change? Well, then listen. On that assumption that you want good things. I think the passage tells us the most popular way to deal with sin. Sin is the threat to goodness. It's the threat to mercy. It's the threat to prosperity. And this passage tells us the most popular way to deal with sin. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's the most popular way to deal with sin in the church too, unfortunately. How do people conceal their sins? 
Well, sometimes they just hide. So let's punch in the internet address, click go, look at porn, until we drop. Then close out all the windows, delete the history, go to bed, open up the door, whatever we do, act like we weren't doing anything wrong. Hide. That's what this fellow was doing in the bad part of town a couple weeks ago. When I'm living my life, I got, I've got Heath and these elders in it. And they're knocking on my door and they're texting me. So I know what I'll do. I'll go hide. I'll turn off my phone and I'll go to this garbagey part of town that they'd never look. And I'll shut the door and I'll lock it and I'll eat pizza and I'll smoke cigarettes and I'll look at porn for days and days and days and days. Hide. It's the most popular way to deal with sin, by concealing. We also conceal by denying because sooner or later... You f- people find out. It's the way sin works. Your sins find you out sooner or later. Sin leaves a trail. Sin hooks you. And you just ultimately you can't cover all the tracks. So sooner or later, somebody finds out and then you have to deny it. We had a, we had a person in our life in the last couple of weeks that was um, found to be on the Ashley Madison list. Had a problem with porn. Um, and uh, that problem with porn led to Ashley Madison, this website where you can go and um, meet people to commit adultery with. The problem is their website got hacked and all the information got leaked out. And now everybody who ever signed up for the service is out there on the Internet just waiting to be found. And this particular person uh, worked for an organization that searched the names and found him. And they called him in. And they said, what's going on here? And the first thing he did was deny it. Oh, not me, I wouldn't do that. Never done that. But then there was too much evidence. There was credit card information and that kind of thing. And so he had to, he was forced to admit it. And now we're, we're trying to help them with their, with their counseling. But his instinct was to conceal it. And they had to chase him down over it. And he lost his job over it. It's one way to conceal it. Another way to conceal, still in this most popular way to deal with sin, is we, we shift the responsibility. So we, we get discovered. We can't deny it anymore because there's too much facts. And so we say, well, honey, I wouldn't have to look at porn if you would be more available sexually. It's concealing your transgressions. It's, it's denying and sh- it's shifting the blame. It's making my sin your fault. You see what that is? That says, I am not responsible for this. You are. Sometimes we can do it in a way that implicates God. If God would give me a husband, I wouldn't be looking at porn. It's concealing your transgressions, covering it up by shifting the blame. 
Now, here's, here's the horrifying thing that's happening in our culture as we conceal transgressions. We conceal by embracing the transgression. So, here the concealing is not concealing the act. It's concealing the label of the act. This, this is what's happening with our culture with regard to homosexuality, with regard to transgenderism. We're not going to live in the darkness anymore. We're not going to lurk in the shadows anymore. We are going to insist that this is a normal and a right and an appropriate way to live. And if you're not on board, then you're the one who's to blame. But this is the thousands-year-old error of Proverbs 28, 13. It's trying to conceal transgressions. It's trying to cover up the transgression by moving it from the category of transgression to righteous. We're having this, uh, our ACBC annual conferences in, uh, oh goodness, two weeks. Um, and we've got a pre-conference on transgenderism. We've got Uh, the annual conference on homosexuality. And we are doing the most controversial thing you can do. Because we're not just saying, in fact, we, we are operating under the assumption that transgenderism and homosexuality is wrong. There's, there's hardly going to be any arguments at the conference. And we, we've hardly engaged in any arguments in our work that these are wrong. We just say we've, we're assuming that this, we, we are not compelled that the biblical revelation is clear, is unclear on this. We are compelled that the biblical revelation is clear and we're operating under that assumption. What we are going to do is show how you could help people change well. When you tell a hypersexualized culture that transgender and homosexuality is wrong, you will make them very upset. When you tell them that they can and should change, you will inspire them to riot. And you would not believe the communications that I get. You would not believe the people who call the office and who write letters and who tweet at me and um, threaten my kids um, because you say... That's wrong. And you need the grace of Jesus. I was just having an interaction with a woman who is uh, a, a leader in the so-called Christian homosexual and transgender movement. Um, and uh, she is infuriated with the pain that I and people like me are bringing into people's lives because we won't get on board. Don't you know people are going to kill themselves because of what you're saying? And you traipse along and you call people sinners and you tell them to change and they're going to die. And... Um, the people in the office that see these things and they say, does that make you angry? And you know, it doesn't make me angry. It doesn't make me angry at all. It makes me want to cry. Because you have a person who wears the name of Christian that thinks it's cruel and unusual punishment 
to call people to trust in the grace of Jesus to be different. And it seems reasonable. This one woman in particular, it seems what seems reasonable to her is that Christians would get on board with paying for surgeries that would remove external body organs of people who think their body can't possibly be the body they're supposed to have. And I just see a woman who is dead and her trespasses and sins. And she needs grace. And it makes me want to have the conference even more so that we could just say, here's the truth. Here is light and life. And the reason I want to do it is because I believe that if you conceal your transgressions, you won't prosper. We, we want people to prosper. We, we buy the assumption that you want good things. And if you conceal your transgressions by saying, here's a transgression, it's just not a transgression. It's a good thing and you have to embrace it. Then we will ensure their destruction. We will ensure that they are in pain. And so this text tells us the most popular way to deal with transgressions, and it's by covering it up, either through hiding, denying, shifting, or embracing. And the promise is that if you do it, you won't prosper. And I take it that that is a very hard thing to believe. Because not many people do it. And because I've done it. I, I know what it is to sit there and say, I'm not going to, I'm just going to keep this one to myself this time because everybody's going to freak out if I say something. And so this is back to, do you believe it? Here is a presentation of information. Do we believe God, the source of every good thing who says, I want you to prosper. And here's a guarantee about how you won't, if you cover it up, if you can see that you won't prosper. Well, if you're not supposed, to prosper, not supposed to prosper by concealing, then what? How do you change? What do you do to deal with this sin? And I think the answer in the text is what we would call repentance. Repentance is so unpopular. It's, it's so unpopular because repentance is based on another assumption that we're wrong. And nobody likes to admit they're wrong. Just reference your last debate with your spouse or with your parents or with the sin you covered up. People don't like to admit they're wrong because people are proud. We'll talk about that later. People don't like to admit they're wrong. And so this is unpopular. In fact, it's, it's, even, it's unpopular in Christian circles every bit as much as it's unpopular in unchristian circles. And there was a, there's a, an evangelical... Uh, journal. So these are Christians that are that run this journal. It's it's a well known journal, um, and um, they asked me to write an article for them on the change process. And uh, I said okay. So I wrote the article. This has been several years ago now. I wrote the article and I submitted it. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from the editor, and he's like Heath. I love this article. This is great. That's just what we wanted, but there is a problem. And we need you to fix it or we can't run it. What, great, what is it? 
you talk about repentance too much. And, and we have been talking, and we would like you to go through and eliminate all of the references to repentance in the article. <laughs> and this is a person I know, and I'm telling you, he's a Like, you might not believe me after I tell you that because you're chuckling. But I'm telling you, he's a Christian. He loves Jesus. And he thinks you should repent. He repents. But he doesn't want to put it in the journal. And the reason he doesn't want to put it in the journal is because it's going to upset people. So he's like, I love the idea, but would you just take out repentance every time you say it? And um, I, I don't know what you'll think about my response, but here, here's the thing. When I, the thing I know when I write something and I hand it in to whoever the editor is or whatever, the, the one thing I know is that it's not perfect. So I know I messed up somewhere. I know I said something incorrectly. I know I said something indelicately. I know I misrepresented something. I know it's imperfect. And so I really do love criticism on writing. Um, because I just, it's more useful to me than praise. Because I turned it in because I already thought it was good. So, uh, uh, so if you tell me where it's not good, then it really helps me. And uh, so I said, okay. I was like, I'm, this is throwing me off here a little bit, but I want to think about it. So I appreciate that, you know, five of you read it or whatever, and this is a unanimous opinion, and so I don't want to say what my instinct is to say, and so let me think about it. And so I went back, and I read it, and I thought, you know, I could take out the word repentance and say something else and still get at the same idea, but I just wound up deciding I just didn't want to do it. And I called him and I said, listen, man, I love you and I'm so thankful for you and I'm glad that we are pulling in the same direction. But I just want to appeal to you that repentance is a good word. And if people are nervous about repentance, then let's not, let's not change the word. Let's just argue that they should be excited about repentance. And he said, well, let me think about that. So then he went and he talked to these guys. He called me back and he said, you know, we're not going to do it. And I said, well, I'm not going to change it. And so that was that. I had this article that never went anywhere. All right, that's fine. But these are, I'm telling you, I know these people. They are Christians. They love the Lord, but they don't like the word repentance. It makes people nervous. So this is, this is an unpopular thing to do. And yet here is, and in fact, the term isn't even in Proverbs 28, 13. But I think the biblical concept of repentance is here very clearly charted out as clearly as it's charted out anywhere. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I think what we have here is the two things that you have to have in order to repent. And when you do it, when you do them, you will get mercy. You get the good thing that everybody wants and most people try to get the wrong way, but cover it up, hide it, deny it, shift it, embrace it. No, no prosperity there. But if you will do this thing, this really hard, unpopular thing, then you'll get mercy. You'll get good things. You'll be the recipient of a gift that is a precious treasure. Good things things from God. 
And as the text says, there's two parts to it. Repentance, I think, is these two things. First, it is confession. You confess it. This is so hard. Do you know, you know the hardest thing that a person can say, I think, is three words. I was wrong. Oh, oh, saying it to your wife when you didn't do the right thing. You lost your temper and said something about her mother. And what you said about her mother was true. But you said it in anger to tear down instead of in love to build up. And she's angry. And her anger is sinful anger. She's saying mean things to you. But you know what you did isn't right. And to say, I was wrong. To say that to somebody you love is hard. To say it to somebody you don't love is even harder. You ever had to say, I was wrong to somebody you don't like, and they've had a pattern of mistreating you, but you messed up and sinned against them? And you, it's like a thumbtack sandwich. And say, listen, what I did was sinful. And I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I've, I've said that to people who, ha, who have devoted lots of time to tearing me down. And like they don't confess their sin. But they did this, I did this one little thing. And I got to come and say, I did it. It was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Yeah, yeah, I'll forgive you. Thanks, Heath. Dizzy with frustration. And then they go and use that against you. Well, he, he apologized. He knew he was wrong. It's the hardest thing there is to do. To say it to God. It takes a miracle of grace. If you ever say, I was wrong and mean it, that's a miracle. That's a miracle of grace. It takes God to change your heart so that you could name your sin. I did it. It was wrong. Look at 1 John. It's so hard, and it's such a miraculous thing when it happens that we need motivation to do it here. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, 
and his word is not in us. This text encourages us towards mercy. It encourages us towards the mercy we get when we confess our sin, when we say it. I did it. It was wrong. And it does it in a couple of ways. The first way it does it is by telling us that there's only one person who doesn't have to confess anything. And it's God. God is the one being in the universe that never has to confess anything. And so when you confess sin, you are confessing it in the midst of a human race that has to confess right along with you. They might not know they have to do it. They might not be willing to do it. But you're not in some boat out here all by yourself needing to confess sin and nobody else understands what that's like. And so it's encouraging to know that you're not alone in this. That there's one being, one person, God, who never has to confess anything else and all the rest of us are in the same boat. You're not weird, strange, different, odd because you've got to confess sin. Here's another way the text encourages us to confess sin. This is a text, 1 John 1 is, about how to live in the light. John wants people to live in the light of Christ. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's the one person that doesn't ever sin and so never has to confess. And John says, I want you to live in his light. I want you to walk in the light of his person. So how do you walk in the light? He tells us. And he doesn't tell us what we think it is to walk in the light. We think, just instinctively, we think you're walking in the light when you're not sinning. Isn't that what we think the light is? The light is, I'm living a good life. That's the light. I'm not struggling with porn. I'm not struggling with adultery. I'm not meeting women on the internet. I don't hit my wife. I am a kind husband. Living in the light is, I don't struggle with sin. But that's not what 1 John 1 says living in the light is. In fact, the great irony is that as soon as you say, I don't sin... First John 1 says, you just stopped living in the light. There's no such thing as a person who is not sinning. And if you say, I'm him, then you call God a liar. That's what First John 1 says. So First John 1 gives the lie to the belief that Christians are walking in the light when we don't sin. That's not what the light is. The light is... When you confess the sin you commit. That's how you walk in the light. Walking in the light is not concealing your transgressions. That's how you don't prosper. Walking in the light is when you confess the sins you, that God knows you have. And if for one second you ever stop doing that, you start saying, I don't struggle with those kinds of things. I don't struggle with sin. You just walked out of the light. So the Bible does not have an understanding for some kind of cleaned up Christianity where everybody's doing awesome and not struggling. If we are to walk in the light, we've got to be honest about the sin we commit. That's the 
beautiful irony of what 1 John does is it gives us the freedom to be sinners, if you know what I mean by that. Not in my secretary's misinterpretation of Romans 6, 14, hey, we're not under law, we're under grace, so let's sin. It gives us the freedom to admit that we're sinners. To unshackle the chains of everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be together or we're going to be oddballs. It encourages, to, encourages us towards mercy by encouraging us just to admit it. And when you admit it, you'll be in the light. And then it encourages us towards this mercy in a third way. By telling us that when we confess it, something amazing will happen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you say it, if you'll just say it, he is faithful and just. What's that mean? It means that whether or not God does this, whether or not he forgives your confession, is not about you. It's not about how sinful or how righteous you are. God makes forgiveness after confession contingent on who he is. It doesn't say if you confess, it wasn't that bad, and he's going to look the other way. It says if you confess, he is faithful and he is just. And here's why that's about him. Because Jesus Christ was executed on the cross for your sins to pay, to pay for the sin, to take away the penalty. And Jesus didn't potentially pay for sin. This was not a pipe dream. Jesus actually made real live payment for real live sin. And when he pays it, the sin goes away. And if you confess your sin and God doesn't forgive it, then he has disregarded the payment of his son. He would never do it. He would never look upon the payment of Jesus Christ for your sin and then hold you accountable for your sin. He would never require a double payment like that because he's faithful and he's just. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. When you look at porn, you feel guilty and dirty. Because you are guilty and dirty. You, you are indicted with guilt and you are, by definition, impure. 
And for people who have consciences on this, they want to be forgiven and clean. How do you get forgiven and clean when you're guilty and dirty? Well, you need to confess your sin and then have a faithful Christ render forgiveness for that sin. And then you need to believe it. You need to believe that this is true. You need to believe that he really is faithful and just. And whether you're forgiven or not is not about weighing how bad your sin is. We know your sin is bad. It's about is God faithful and just to accept the payment of that sin by his son? And he is. And you'll be forgiven. And you'll be cleansed. And here is where this passage is really important for the family members of people who are struggling with porn. I know, um, I know many women who've said things like, I'm never going to forgive him for this. I'm never going to be able to have sex with him after this pervert. It's disgusting. But here's what this passage says to you. This passage says to you that if God thinks someone is forgiven and clean because they've confessed their sins and been forgiven and cleansed by Jesus, if God thinks they're forgiven and clean, then you are not allowed to disagree with God. That's hard, that's complicated, there is real relational damage that this brings into people's life, but, and we have to work on all that, and that's, that's a, that can take time to unpack that, but at the end of the day where we're going is you're not allowed to have a different opinion about your husband than Jesus Christ. And at some point, you're going to have to submit your judgment about your husband or your son or your wife or your dad to the judgment of Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to, in humility, agree with Jesus. That if Jesus thinks they're forgiven and clean, you're not allowed to have a better idea about that. And so, this passage encourages us towards the mercy that is held out in Proverbs 28.13. And that's just the first part of Proverbs 28.13. If you confess and forsake, you will obtain mercy. So you've got to confess it. You've got to name it. But the confession is not yet repentance. It's just the first step in repentance. In order to get mercy, it doesn't say if you confess your sin, you get mercy. It says if you confess and forsake, you will obtain mercy. And so... After we name the sin, after we say it, I did it and it was wrong. I'm not going to conceal it. I'm going to say it. Well, now then, we have to forsake it. The word forsake here is uh, is a word that is a very unpleasant word 
when it's not in this context. This is about as pretty as the term gets. But when you think about the word forsaken, when we normally use it, it is not a pleasant term. I was, uh, about a year ago, I was uh, teaching biblical counseling to Chinese pastors at an underground seminary in, uh, in China. And I'd been there for two weeks teaching these guys. There's like 40 guys who traveled from all over China to come and be at this. It's, it's a seminary. And so this was the two weeks for, for biblical counseling training. And uh, we're like, uh, I'm hiding in buildings and all this. It wasn't legal. The meetings we were having were not legal. And um, I was not allowed to get a cell phone plan because I couldn't, I wasn't going to be able to use my cell phone while I was there because you can't do that. And so I was just kind of on my own. And there was the missionary had a computer and I was able to Skype with my family twice uh, during the two weeks that I was there. But um, mostly it was just me on my own uh, talking with these Chinese pastors with an interpreter, had this great interpreter through the week and two weeks are up. And the missionaries are in a time pinch. They've got to drop me off at the airport, which was a small regional airport in the area of the country where we were. And I was going to fly from there to Shanghai and fly from Shanghai, which Shanghai is a great big one, fly from Shanghai to uh, Chicago. So they, they're really in a pinch to get somebody else someplace else. So they drop me off at the airport and I go into this little, it's like the Louisville airport. Um, I don't know how Louisville's airport compares to Cincinnati. I'm getting ready to find out about the Cincinnati airport here in a few minutes, but, uh, or here in a few hours. But, um, uh, but it, the Louisville airport's pretty small, and this airport where I was in China was like that. So they dropped me off. I go up to the counter, and uh, the guy can't speak English, so I just give him a ticket. And he's... I swear they're playing Tetris on those things, by the way. How much, how much is there to type? I mean, they just keep clicking, clicking, clicking. So, but he's doing that, and he goes, no ticket. Um, well, no, so here's my ticket, you know, slide it over. No ticket. Um, so I don't understand the problem. No English. Where, where is, is there somebody here that can speak English? No English. And the man Stands up, he, my briefcase was on the counter. He moves the briefcase to the other side and other Chinese people came and shoved me away from the counter. And so I go to the Air China desk. This was the regional carrier that was gonna take me to US Air in Shanghai. And I said, uh, the guy over there says my ticket doesn't work. No English. Does anybody here speak English? No English. I walked up to the airport information desk. No English. No English. I go back to the Air China desk and give the gal, the ticket. I was like, can you, and she's like, no ticket, no ticket, no English, no missionaries either. So I am literally standing in the middle of the Wenzhou airport and everybody I see is Chinese. And listen, I was forsaken. All right. There's nobody, there's no English speakers. There's no non-Asian people. It's just me. And I said, God, you have to get me out of China. I mean, so here it is. This is just, there's no action to take. Like every, I went to every desk. Nobody speaks English. I even looked at some people who looked more Western and they couldn't speak English. And so I'm just going, God, you have to get me out of China. 
What am I going to do? There's nobody to call. My phone doesn't work because I couldn't remember. I could turn on the international plan. So, God, you have to show up. And, you know, just so this isn't important to the story, but just so you know, God was so kind. Uh, and I turned right as soon as I finished praying, I turned around and through the airport came walking my interpreter. Now, what about that? God said, okay, I'll get you out of China. And he sent the interpreter in, who was not supposed to be there, who was supposed to be headed in the opposite direction. But he said, do you know, I knew the missionaries were going to be in a rush. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go. I'm going to turn around and drive back. Just be sure you get off okay. And I'm like, Duncan. I'd have kissed him on the mouth. It didn't come to that. But, uh, but we were able to work it out, and I got out of there. So anyway... I was forsaken, though. Now, God didn't forsake me, but I was all alone. Nobody wants to be forsaken. When we think of the term forsake, this is an unpleasant thing. It is complete and total abandonment. But that's the meaning that I think we're invited to import into this. We confess the sin And then we forsake it. We do this strong thing. We abandon the sin. We leave it off. We leave it for dead to die of exposure. And I think this idea of forsaking is unpacked for us in Colossians chapter 3. Flip over there. I think Colossians 3 is inviting us to obtain the mercy of Proverbs 28, 13. And it's inviting us to obtain the mercy through the forsaking of sin that it encourages to us. And I want you to see three things about Colossians 3. The first one is in the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. This is a chapter, Colossians 3 is, about change. How do you be different? And... Paul explains to us how to be different by first, again, always reminding us of who Jesus is and reminding us of where we are in relation to him. There's no change without Jesus. How are you going to forsake a sin? Sin feels good. Sin is fun. That's the promise, right? That's the appeal. How are you going to forsake something that you enjoy? It takes power. How do you loosen the chokehold that pornography can have on your throat. How do you do that? Well, it takes grace. It takes something power, something greater than your sin, and that grace is in the person of Jesus. So the first thing Paul tells us to do is look to Jesus. Again, always look to Jesus. See his grace. You are in Christ. You're united with him. You died with him. You're alive with him. You're going to be resurrected with him. That's the first thing it says. If you want to forsake the way Proverbs 28, 13 says to, you've got to know Jesus. You've got to know his resources. And then second, put to death 
Verse 5. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. After you look to Jesus, the second thing you have to do is stop doing some things. So this is what we made reference to last time in Romans 6. Consider all the bad ways that you are offering your body to sin and stop doing them. This is telling us that we've got to do all kinds of things like put passwords on our computer, like get rid of the smartphone, All kinds of things that we stop doing by grace in Christ. We stop doing, we put to death, we put them all away. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is verse 12. Put on then. So not just put off, but put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is saying after you've looked to Christ, it's not enough to stop doing certain things. You have to start doing other good things. This is the idea of uh, put off and put on, which is so frequently addressed throughout the entire Bible, particularly in the New Testament and particularly in the epistles. And this is so important because of two reasons. Because number put off and put on is what real change is. How do I change? How do I be different? Well, real change doesn't come merely when you stop doing a bad thing. It comes when so many Christians have observed when you replace that bad thing with a good thing. This is so practical. It's so practical to to not just quit something, but to start something. Let's say it's sinful to think about red houses. That's not a sin, obviously, but I can't give you a real sin because I'm going to ask you to think about it real hard for a minute, and that'll be bad. So... But it's sinful to think about red houses. Don't think about red houses. God, I'm thinking about red houses all the time. Red houses make me sin. I need to quit. Please help me to stop. I don't want to think about red houses. This is what people do. Their efforts at change actually undermine their efforts at change because they're always thinking about what they think they need to quit thinking about. And the Bible's so much more practical than that. It doesn't say just quit thinking about red houses. It says start thinking about blue houses. 
Don't just quit thinking about the sin. Start thinking about righteousness, and that will be real change. And that will be practical. As I talked with that man a couple of weeks ago in that hotel room, he was... I don't even know how to tell you how awful this was. The smell, the sight. As I'm sitting there looking at this naked man, and he said, after he started to get frustrated, the stuff you tell me to do doesn't work. For years, we've been talking about this, and it never works, and I'm still here. It's fascinating what he's doing. He's blaming his beard and his bad breath and the pizza and the booze and the porn. He's blaming it on the stuff I tell him to do. I do everything you say and it never works. And I said, brother, you do everything I say except repent. (laughs) You won't confess it. And you won't forsake it. And he said, all right, well, what do I do? I said, you need to leave your life of sin and you need to turn to Jesus Christ. Okay, well, how do I do that? I said, put your pants on and come out of here with me right now. And um, we're gonna, we had this place where we were going to have him stay and I said, put your pants on right now and come with me and let's go there right now. And he said, I'm not going anywhere with you. It's not that the Bible doesn't work. It's not that God's grace isn't powerful. It's that he was bound and determined to conceal his transgressions. And there's no prosperity in that. But when we confess and forsake by grace, we get mercy. Now, the next two things I want to talk about are what are those things that we would replace this bad stuff with? After we confess and when we forsake, what are we forsaking for? And that's what we'll talk about next.